1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies, uh, a podcast channel on the New Book uh, Network. I am Polina Popova, the host of the channel. Today, I will be talking to Elena Goodwin about her book, Translating England into Russian, The Politics of Children's Literature in the Soviet Union and Modern Russia Um, the book was published in 2020 Uh, Elena welcome to the show and um, I wonder if you can begin with introducing uh, yourself to our listeners
2: hello thank you very much for inviting me to the show I'm very happy to be here uh, talking about my book I am Elena Goodwin, and I've got a PhD from Exeter University, United Kingdom, where I researched translation of children's literature, um, classics of British children's literature into Russian and Englishness in those translations. And uh, this book is the logical continuation of my research at the University of Exeter ah,
1: uh, thank you and so my first question uh, will be um, about the following and maybe it's a bit personal but I wonder uh, how much uh, you personally and scholarly were influenced by English literature in its um, so in its Russian translation right um, and where did this topic uh, for your book um, come from? Did you, like many other scholars of the Soviet and Russian children's literature, read uh, those books in translations? For example, Dickens, Wells, uh, Milne, Carroll, Conan Doyle, and Haggard. I can go for a long time with them. Um, So basically, tell us how you came to write uh, this book, both from personal and professional perspective. That's a very good question.
2: Thank you. Um, looking back into my childhood, I loved reading British literature in translation. And almost all of the authors you've mentioned, I read their books when I was little and then a teenager. I also loved Scottish literature. Walter Scott was my favourite. Most probably Conan Doyle and Walter Scott were those writers, if I may say, responsible for the idealised image of England and Scotland that I had created in my imagination. And the idea to research Russian translation of British children's literature started with Kenneth Graham's amazingly inspirational novel, The Wind in the Willows, which was published in 1908. It was translated into Russian in 1988, and it's It just somehow happened that I simply missed this book and didn't know about it until I was an adult and was told about it. It just seemed like such an amazing story, simple but yet so powerful. And I wanted to understand why it took so long for it to see its Russian readers.
1: Wow, very interesting. Yes, Conan Doyle definitely um, and Walter Scott were two of my favorite authors when I was a teenager or in my early teen years, Yelena, uh, you mentioned that English writers like uh, Kipling idealized England to a great extent, right? For example, you write it in your um, chapter fifth, chapter five of the book. Uh, but did you too idealize? Like you mentioned, Walter Scott in that <laughs> idealized image. Um, and when did? It, since you said you did, uh, but when did? Uh, this idealization stopped when, or when did you realize that you know uh, England in reality is not the same as uh, England presented in the books? Most
2: probably when I moved to live in England uh, about 16 years ago Um, Yeah, when you're far away from the country, uh, you imagine how it can be, um, but when you uh, move to live there, you just see something different, so Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, but literature helps to create a myth of Mm -hmm. the country,
1: yeah. But did it also prepare you for mm, your uh, life in England? in some
2: way Um, well it's different uh literature and art and films um and theater it's one thing and real life is uh, another thing so Mm -hmm. Mm um i don't know It, it was such a long time ago now it feels like it was ages ago but um probably i was a little bit um Disappointed that I didn't see what I expected to see. But Mm -hmm. no, it's probably uh, similar to lots of people. They just imagine something and then Mm -hmm. um, it just happens to be a little bit
1: different. Different. I agree. Um, So in the book's introduction, you discuss the different versions of so to speak, Englishness, right? Among them were those related to places, um, the British imperial past, certain political institutions, or British national character. In this context, can we discuss um, Karničukovsky's and Samuel Marshak's personal roles in promoting of all of these kinds of Englishness into Soviet children's uh, minds? And feel free to speak about all of them, or just uh, some of them in particular.
2: Okay, thank you. Well, both Kornay Chukovsky and Samuel Marshak played an important role in promoting English culture in the Russian Empire before the October Revolution and afterwards when Russia became the Soviet Union. Both were famous Soviet children's poets, translators, literary critics, and advocates of children's literature. Both of them uh, were also Uh, Both of them also developed a love for English culture in the early stages of their literary careers. They lived in Britain for a while before the October Revolution. Tchaikovsky worked in London as a reporter for the weekly newspaper Odeski Novosti, Odessa News, between 1901 and 1903. In his sketches, he portrayed Britain as he had seen it, and he... So different portraits of Britain, not just the idealized images we've just discussed. Uh, Samuel Marshak stayed in Britain between 1912 and 1914, and he studied at the University of London and during summer breaks went hiking in the southwest of England. He recorded his impressions of Devon and Cornwall in several sketches which were published in the periodical press in 1914 in Russia. He also documented his works in Devon and Cornwall in one of Um, his poems, but it was published only in Russia in 1973. In addition to this, Marshak described aspects of daily life in England, English literature, landscape, and national character in private letters written when he was staying in England, which were also published. So in their sketches about Edwardian Britain, both of them wrote uh, about various aspects of British life. And these sketches, as I mentioned, were published in Russian newspapers and magazines and uh, were accessible to a great number of people. Tchaikovsky uh, visited England again before the October Revolution and then later in life. And in his 1915 book, The Silent Speak, published in uh, Russian in Petrograd, he analyzed the nature of English national character by referring to letters written by British private soldiers during the First World War. So the Russian mass reader would feel sympathetic towards the British soldier. And Tchaikovsky highlighted bravery, loyalty, dignity, and duty as traits of English national character seen through the lens of the British war effort, and particularly emphasized that not only English literature, poetry, painting, but also the great civic consciousness uh, had a magnetic effect on the Russian Intelligentsia. This book was very popular and had several reprints and was recommended for reading in schools and in the army. However, it was banned after the October Revolution. And in uh, his 1914 essay, How I Came to Love Anglo-American Literature, Tchaikovsky said that Before creating his own children's stories, he was inspired by ideas from English nursery rhymes, Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland, Edward Lee's nonsense books, and Alan Alexander Milne's poems, and assimilated them in his own writing. The time Tchaikovsky and Marshak spent in Britain meant a lot to both of them. Uh, not only had they learned about the Edwardian British culture from personal experience, but literature literature also had a great impact on their choice of books for translation and creative works. And they both are famous for translations of Shakespeare, Burns, Byron, Kipling, um, English um, and Scottish ballads, uh, children's poems by Edward Lear, Lewis Carroll, Alan Mill. And... also by going back to your question I can give an example of a novel translated by Tchaikovsky that resonates with Soviet political and social rhetoric uh, about uh, unhappy life of orphans under the capitalist system um, he adapts characteristics of Englishness which are called political and ideological associations of Englishness to the Soviet context and in the example uh, that I'm going to tell you. Um, It is the class system uh, and um, as characteristic of Englishness. It is James Greenwood's uh, novel, The True History of a Little Rug Muffin, written in 1866. It was not initially written for child readers, but it was accepted as literature suitable for children and young adults in the Soviet Union. And it didn't have and doesn't have a canonical status in Britain, but it was included into the canon of translated literature by the Soviet authorities. And this no because, because of its
1: ex- class, because of its uh, pla- uh-huh, uh-huh. highlights, the class division, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, about the hardships of the poorest classes in Victorian Britain. So it was just perfect. And the... um. It was written in the style of Oliver Twist and it is a sentimental story of the hardship of an impoverished child, Jimmy, who runs away from home. He lives in the slums of Victorian London and joins its gangs. The book was known to children in pre-revolutionary Russia and during the Soviet period it was retold by Chukovsky together with another uh, translator, A. Anenskaya, in 1926. And then, again, it was retold by Tchaikovsky and another translator, T. Bogdanovich, in uh, 1929. And this particular version was reprinted uh, during the Soviet period. And they adapted this book for children and significantly changed the ending of the story. <laughs>
1: Very interesting,
2: fascinating. In their version, Jimmy leaves the gang and finds a job at a factory, thus becoming a member of the working class. In the original, Jimmy
1: is put into prison, then goes to Australia. It almost reminds me of Hollywood uh, or Disney when they change endings to famous stories, right? (laughs) Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah, so he goes to Australia and upon his return to England starts helping homeless children Yeah, so this is the example of um, Englishness, uh, which I call ideological and political associations of Englishness, and in particular, the class system. I can also give you an example from Samuel Marshak's translation, if you would like to. Yeah, go ahead,
1: please. Okay,
2: right. So the other example is the... Um, traditional English ballad, the uh, which is called "King John and the Bishop." Uh, it was first printed in the seventeenth ni- century, and it is set in medieval England. And it has three protagonists: King John, a collective. Uh, image of an English king the rich and powerful bishop of Canterbury and a clever shepherd Uh, suspecting the bishop of treason the king orders him to answer three questions feeling hopeless the bishop begs uh, the shepherd to help him and the clever shepherd swaps places with him goes to the palace and saves him by giving answers to the king's questions so that's the story of the ballad and uh, in uh, Russian translation by Samuel Marshak um which first appeared in 1918 and then it was um readapted slightly uh and republished in 1926 and 1936 and that last uh version was reprinted during the Soviet period and um In 1926, it appeared under the title The King and the Shepherd. Uh, And it was published as a book, a thin book. And then it was um, published again in the children's magazine, Kastior. It was the first volume in 1937. And what Maršak did... Is also interesting. It's not as, as with the previous example, it doesn't mean that everything was changed completely. No, when we talk about translation, we talk about nuances, but some nuances are very telling and interesting. So, um, uh, Marshak's version, um, he introduced changes in the translated ballad that were dictated by the spirit of the time. And the theme was also appealing uh, for uh, selecting this poem for translation because it's uh, about the oppressive rich and the brave poor, uh, which also kind of uh, falls into this category, political and ideological associations of Englishness and the class system. So in the ballad, the English King John was shown as merciful. However, it was noted that he was not good at all. Um, uh, not 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 good at all. He he uh, was merciful, but did great um, wrongs. But he put down great right, as I quote from the ballad. Marchak's translation does not reflect this. Instead, um, he mentions that the king did at least do something good, saying in... Um, uh, he did, he does not, sorry, he does not mention that the king did something good. He says that the brave Prince John judged and ruled sitting on an oak throne, not knowing any rules or law. And It's kind of a distorted image of an unjust king, which corresponded to stereotypical Soviet perceptions of the capitalist West and suited the Soviet anti-royal and anti-religious rhetoric. And his translation mocked the English King John, whose judgment was unjust. Also, it mocked the Abbot of Canterbury, who lived happily, never being in need of anything, and gained a reputation as the richest man in the country. So that's the ballad, uh, the version, uh, the original version. And Mashak placed more stress on the negative image of the bishop which also suited um, Soviet anti-religious views. In the original text, the king accuses the bishop of being a traitor, and his accusation is described in one line only, I fear you uh, has treason against my crown. So it's kind of paraphrasing the original. Murshak expanded this line to supply further lines in the Russian version, saying that the bishop was a cunning traitor who conspired against the crown and whose guilt was evident to everyone. And the images of the bad king and the clever shepherd might be seen as embodiment of the ruling class in Russia before the seventh uh, the October revolution of the of the 1917 and, this, and it, it's the king and the Soviet ruling class of workers and peasants as the shepherd and Marchak's version contains no information about the English king being merciful just and generous as I've already mentioned on the contrary it praises the clever and brave shepherd portraying him as a commoner who was bold enough to confront the king and come to the aid of the bishop so this example shows us that political and ideological associations of Englishness were adjusted to the current ideological demands of the Soviet society that were emphasized by narratives that exposed and satirized the capitalist system. And in a way,
1: yeah.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: And especially in the 30s, right, with the cultural yeah. revolution and this yeah. cementation of the regime, uh, this, this this characters should have been very pronounced, right? Yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah, to help kind of channel public opinions to the direction that was deemed necessary. So kind of translation worked to help that way.
1: Very interesting. And uh, you know what? I want to jump off of both Tchaikovsky changing the the completely changing the ending, uh, and Marshak changing the sort of personal narratives. Right, the characters of. the protagonist of the poem. Uh, I want to now ask you about um this politicization of magic, speaking in, in Marina Balina's terms, right? Uh, from your book, I know that Lenin had a strong opinion on Hoggart's political treat um treatises, and uh this was why um that book for Huggard's book for young adults, were not translated and published in the Soviet Union until uh, the Thaw period, the 1960s, that, that was in chapter three. And so I wonder if we can talk about um, personal involvement of the political figures in uh, this. Um, translation of um, Englishness, right, uh, into Russian. Uh, maybe we can even talk about Stalin's personal involvement in uh, that uh, process or anyone else's.
2: Well, um, I'm thinking about um, kind of different example of how uh, non-involvement help um and translations appeared afterwards. So, what I mean is, um, it's how Stalin didn't involve in the case of Samuel Marshak. Um, so, in a way, allowing translations to appear in the future, so he stayed we can say, alive. Yeah, so um, marshak headed the Leningrad branch of the State Publishing House for Children's Literature from 1924 until 1938. And the branch was dismantled in 1937 and the children's writers working for it, who were Marshak's colleagues, were arrested and some of them were executed. And the destruction of is that, which was um, the publishing house name, was initiated by the Leningrad branch, was initiated by its political editor and censor, whose surname was Chevychelov in Russian. It sounds a little bit unpleasant, I think, which are agree, yeah. Yeah, so he informed against the Marshak group accusing them of being traitors regardless of the fact that Marshak was considered an authority in the children's literature world and uh, that report achieved its goal Marshak ceased to be the editor in the Leningrad branch of Detezdad and moved to Moscow in 1938 and Marshak evaded purges aimed at him and his literary circle there is no clear recorded evidence as to exactly how he managed to survive. But according to his grandson, Alexander Marshak children's literature saved Marshak from the political purge. By 1937, he was already a widely popular children's author with his name known to basically every Soviet family. So it would not have been easy for the authorities to find justification for accusing him of anti-Soviet activities and arresting him Moreover, as um, his grandson recalls, Stalin liked marshak and rated him as a good children's writer, and he personally crossed out marshak's name from the list of people to be executed according to Marshak's grandson. So in a way this in involvement uh, helps us see translations that were yet to appear and in help readers to enjoy all those amazing translations by Moshak. And from the general point of view, it's possible to say that Stalin's initial involvement affected the whole field of Soviet translation, including children's literature. Uh, As the story goes, um, he... uh, Coined the idea of socialist realism, although it was first proposed by Ivan Gronsky, a Soviet literary critic and editor of Novimir uh, journal, in his publication in Literaturna Gazeta. Um, newspaper in May 1932, but he claims that prior to the publication, the concept of socialist realism was discussed with Stalin during their meeting in the beginning of May 1932. And Stalin authored the term, as far as the story goes. And then, during the meeting with Soviet communist writers in October, Stalin formulated the principle of socialist realism and put forward the idea that it was to be developed theoretically as an artistic method in literature. And um It was articulated in the end as an official formula of Soviet literature at the first Congress of Soviet writers of 1934. And then in 1936, the principles of socialist realism were linked with translation. So in a way, it's this kind of generally, as we may say in general terms, big involvement of kind of uh, formulating the field. And the principles of socialist realism were important in the development of Soviet School of Translation. So, yeah. Um, also, I can I could say, I could give you another example. Um, I, I wouldn't be able to give you particular examples of how authorities said, oh, this line needs to be um, deleted. But my examples are more General, from um, examples from the general perspective. So, um, from the be- very beginning of the Soviet period, Period, the utmost importance was placed on what kind of books could be chosen and Maxim Gorky, the Russian and Soviet writer and political activist, made great efforts to breathe new life into translated children's literature within his World Literature Project. And his activities were supported at the governmental level by Anatoly Lunacharsky, who opened the door to a large number of foreign books written for children to enter the new Literary uh, environment, and um, that is another way of kind of generally shaping the field. And um, Gorky, um, under Gorky's leadership, Chukovsky, as a member of the Anglo American section, came up with a list of uh, English language books for translation. Uh, especially foreign children's books to be translated. And as he then recalled, that list um, was not used until uh, the 1960s. And, and not many books from that list were published between the 1920s and the 1940s, uh, although there were a few exceptions um the popular classics were allowed, such as Walter Scott's Ivanhoe, if we can say that it's children's literature. It's not, it's not, it's uh, suitable for children to For young read. adults, And, right. and mm-hmm. Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's mm-hmm. Travels, but they were adapted, adapted. for mm-hmm. children. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So we can say that, in a way, this was kind of involvement.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. But since we're talking about involvement, and there was one thing that I wanted to say um, when you were talking about how Stalin personally saved Marshak, and I remembered that uh, Lydia Chukovskaya, daughter of Karni Chukovsky, barely avoided being arrested, and who knows what would happen to her, right, so... It was the matter of chance, and, and her husband at the time was actually purged. So, yes, um, definitely agree that there was a, definitely a personal involvement uh, in the matter of life or death, right, at the time. But, um, and I'm sorry about this um, little uh, no, note, I just thought of uh, Lydia Chukovska. Uh, in this context. And since we were talking about uh, uh, how Stalin or Lunacharsky or Gorky, um, how they allowed many translations to happen, I also want to, uh, if possible, to talk about control. If we we, uh, talk about political control of uh, the narratives, right? Of the um, control over the translation, uh, as a process, can we can you um, tell our listeners a little bit about uh, that about censorship as an institution and particularly censorship in uh, translation um, and whether how much of the personal choice and agency was in the decision uh, of certain people to become translators and how much of that decision was maybe fear of being purged or forgotten or executed uh, and whether the translation, similar to sometimes this is how children's illustration is presented in the scholarly literature, right? Uh, whether it was a more safer uh, field, of course nothing was absolutely safe at the time uh, for the uh, writers and um, for the children's writers or scholars at the time. mm mm-hmm. Um,
2: Well, you know, every case is different and it's impossible to generalize. And looking from today's perspective, especially, it's possible maybe just a bit to understand why certain creative people acted the way they did. Uh, But you're right, um, certain poets and writers turn to translation and to children's literature to be able to continue to Create literary works in the times when they couldn't find a work, or couldn't create, or couldn't write. As, for example, um, in the early days of the new Soviet Republic, uh, Maxim Gorky who I've already mentioned, appealed to the authorities in his report in December 1918 regarding children's literature, suggesting that the selection of titles for publication had to include not only works written in the 18th or the 19th centuries, but also those that were created in earlier periods, especially traditional ballads. And he recommended traditional ballads to be included into school library lists. So Gorky's instructions were taken on board, and the first volume of English ballads appeared in 19. 19- 19. And the book I'm talking about is Ballads about Robin Hood, edited by Nikolai Gumilev, published in Petrograd in, um, as I've said, 1919, which included... Um, his translations uh, and translations of um, the poet and both uh, Nikolai Gumilev uh, and Rezdes- as poets belongs to the Akhmist movement. And so in a way, uh, it was helping poets to survive and to continue writing and creating poetry as translators. And, um, of course, there were official layers of state control over translated literature. And by this, I mean censorship, which was a contributing factor to the Soviet Union's cultural isolation from the world. But it is important to mention that despite the ideological didacticism and communist party control via censorship, children's literature approach specific themes, which could refer to your ideology or historical past in a creative way. And thus, children's writers could find ways of preserving thematic and stylistic features. As for censorship, uh a huge censorship system was built in the Soviet Union between 1917 and 1931 and for up to 60 years its principles did not undergo significant changes the hierarchy of the system uh of Soviet censorship of national and translated literature consisted of five major levels. Communist Party Control, uh, the Department of Political Control in the Committee for State Security, which is KGB, lead um, uh, which was, I would say, the main body, censoring body, the editor, and self-censorship. Um, So um, censorship was carried out also, as I mentioned, by editors in publishing houses, uh, journals, magazines, newspapers, radio stations, TV, film studios, theatres and so on. In fact, this was often even more severe than the censorship implemented by Glovelid, and even substituted some of its functions. Editors were appointed by the state authorities and under their supervision, literary texts underwent severe ideological editing sometimes severe sometimes not depending on the book they had to editors had to keep a close eye on all possible nuances such as obscure citations of forbidden texts and unacceptable allusions and elements of subtext um, that did not agree with the state ideology unofficial list of literary themes banned by censorship existed as I interviewed translations and editors, though it was never actually seen by editors, which is a paradox. It existed, but nobody knew what it was. Um, but rather than follow the letter of the code, they had to use the intuition and guess what a Glovelet censor would cross out from the text. And uh, the banned themes had to be second-guessed by translators as well, who were quite often forced to rely on intuition to impose self-censorship and not that other channel of censorship. And self-censorship uh, was a necessary protective mechanism for any writer or literary translator Um, This had existed before the October Revolution, but in the Soviet Union, a writer or literary translator tried to foresee what possible ideological, political, aesthetic or other issue the official censor might find in the manuscript and consequently remove it beforehand. So. So, the translators had to keep a close watch for bourgeois values in for literature and be vigilant in order not to introduce the essence of the so called bourgeois life in the translated works. Because a mistake. Or not to
1: make them attractive, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because a mistake by a translator could turn into a bigger mistake. So, self-censorship was an everyday tool in the survival kit for all Soviet translators.
1: Um, yeah. Very, uh-huh. yeah, very interesting. You know what? Um, in terms of uh, translation, I found that particular episode so telling that um, you you mentioned, I, I believe, in chapter two how um, the publication of Shakespeare translated by Marshak by Samuel Marshak. Uh, how on that particular publication, Marchak's name was printed in large font, right on the main cover. So, in a way, um, it was a lot of work. Uh, they were not just translators, where they were also censors, self-censors, and uh, editors of their own work. But they were credited so um, generously, right? They they were becoming co-authors in a way. Of of the original books, and I found that very fascinating that that interesting episode or fact.
2: Yeah, well, I suppose when you translate poetry, it's uh, probably inevitable that one would become a co-author, especially if we look at Machaik's creative activities. He was so prolific in everything he did. So, yeah. But uh, I suppose another thing was uh, they uh, were not bound by the copyright uh, legislation in the Soviet Union. I think up until the early 1970s. So they were free to decide probably what to do. But... Yeah, yeah, but uh, I think Tchaikovsky in his diaries kind of commented on this, uh, Marshak surname in capital letters, and Shakespeare kind of under that. So it, probably not everyone liked this idea.
1: Right, of right. That. Of of doing that. Uh, well, another um, another episode, another part of your book that I found myself truly fascinating was uh, that um fantastic s- story about the translation of mary poppins right and um i wonder if you uh, can touch upon this discourse for our listeners who maybe haven't read the book yet uh, first i i want to ask if you can talk about this discourse this of fantastic Um, a fantasy of magic, right? A fantastic discourse that you introduce in your book um, in chapter seven. And also if we can talk about Pamela Travers and her, you know, (laughs) to put it um, softly, somewhat problematic relationships with the Russian translations of her books and um, about uh, her, uh, her relationships with, um, the Soviet Union uh, as a political uh, entity. So can you please tell our listeners more about this absolutely fascinating story? Mm-hmm.
2: Okay. Um, indeed, the books about Mary Poppins contain elements that refer to the discourse of the fantastic and certain aspects of English national characters, such as freedom of expression, peculiar imagination, non-conformity to limiting rules and stereotypes, eccentricity, and interest in the supernatural uh, become pronounced by means of the discourse of the fantastic, and consequently discourse of the fantastic can be considered as expressions of English national character in English fantasy literature, including children's fantasy too. Uh, To define the Fantastic as a concept, I used Farah Mendelssohn's study, Rhetoric of Fantasy, published in 2008 as a point of departure. According to this study, there are four categories of the fantastic. The portal quest, when readers are encouraged to go into the fantastic through a portal. The intrusion fantasy, when the fantastic becomes part of the fictional world, creating horror and or amazement. The liminal fantasy, the magic where the magic is elusive, and the immersive fantasy, there, in which there is no escape for readers. This classification works across children's fantasy and helps analyze its narrative. The examples of the portal and the intrusion are the most widespread categories in children's fantasy. These two categories can also be interconnected. The Portal fantasy can use elements of the intrusion fantasy and vice versa. Both categories are illustrated by the Mary Poppins books. The protagonists find themselves in the fantastic world with the aid of different portals. As a character, Mary Poppins represents the discourse of the fantastic because she is the portal between the supernatural and existential knowledge and the real world. Uh, She takes the children on amazing adventures in the world of the supernatural uh, that exists in Mary Poppins, England. and The fantastic and the daily life interact in uh, Pamela Travis's stories uh, about Mary Poppins. Mixing the two contrasting phenomena is an English literary tradition. Uh, Soviet readers were first introduced to the Mary Poppins books in 1968. The reason why Mary Poppins was not translated into Russian for so long was revealed by Pamela Travers herself when she suggested in an interview given to the New Yorker in 1962 that the Soviet authorities might consider Mary Poppins a uh, bourgeois institution as she said that. Uh, it was the famous Soviet children's poet Sergei Mikhalkov who met Pamela Travers in Switzerland at the end of the 1960s and told her that her books had been translated into Russian. And Later in one of the interviews um, that she gave between 1985 and 1988. She talked about the Russian version of Mary Poppins and stressed that she could not read Russian and therefore did not have any idea what Mary Poppins was saying. And uh, she joked um, about the absurdity of the idea that the Soviets might have made Mary Poppins pronounce all sorts of propaganda. But there was no propaganda in Boris Zachaders' writing of Mary Poppins books. And generally, he retained many of the fantastic elements of the original books. Yeah. I think they
1: omitted a few chapters, right? Uh, Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And and uh, not just a few, quite Mm -hmm. a few, but Mm -hmm. it was his version. So that's why we would say that it's an adaptation of Mary Poppins' books. Yeah. and. But in his Mary Poppins, Mary Poppins takes the children on amazing adventures in the world of the supernatural that exists in her world. And probably one of the reasons for failing to introduce these books to Soviet readers might be explained by Pamela Travis's negative views about the Soviet Union in 19. 32, she went to the Soviet Union to see Leningrad and Moscow and published a book about her journey in 1934 um, before she wrote Mary Poppins. And this book was called Moscow Excursion. This book was immediately reviewed and labelled as not showing proper respect to the country, the Soviet Union. And it was mentioned that uh, the seriousness of the Russian state appalled Pamela Travis, and that she will probably be denounced as a class enemy. And I'm quoting that review. So Travis depicted the Soviet Union as a depressing society and noted the unhappiness, the universal gray, the complete sameness of the people. And uh, her lack of sympathy towards Soviet society is explicitly shown in the book's introduction, in which she says, and I'm quoting her here, in a world rocking madly between fascism and communism, the writer prefers the latter form of tyranny if the choice must be made. So that's uh, her Words. So, uh, and also, she, uh, an interesting thing from the book, she recalled that she brought lemons with her to Russia and gave them as presents to different. Russian people she met. And we need to remember that in the 1930s there were severe restrictions on the circulation of foreign literature in the Soviet Union and censorship control was strengthened. Foreign mass media as well as literature were considered a great force for the promotion of hatred towards the Soviet Union. And this is the most logical explanation why the foreign publication of uh, her Moscow excursion might have affected the possibility of her Mary Poppin's books being translated in the Soviet Union and that they only appeared in later, not when they appeared in Britain.
1: Yeah, you explored so many, um interesting episodes uh in lives of uh writers english writers soviet writers soviet translators um so one of my last questions would be uh, did you enjoy writing the book did you enjoy this journey so to speak
2: thank you so much Uh, well yes i did it was a difficult process quite lonely at times, but it was very rewarding. And looking back, I was very happy writing it. Yeah. And I learned a lot. It was my journey first, and then I tried to write about it.
1: Yeah. You know, it's all—it's always a journey for, for scholars. It's yeah. so interesting. Absolutely. So fascinating. Uh, well, Elena, it seems that we've taken up Um, a lot of your time, and we truly appreciate um, you um, telling our listeners about your book. Again, this is Translating England into Russian, The Politics of Children's Literature in the Soviet Union and uh, Modern Russia. um, That was published by Bloomsbury in 2020. And so um, the very last question that I want to wrap up our interview with would be, what are you currently working on? Any new projects, any new books uh, we should expect from you?
2: Well, hopefully. Uh, it's all working projects. I've got ideas, uh, researching further um, into Soviet children's books and how they were translated into English and how they were um, promoted maybe uh, in England. Uh, I'm also thinking about looking uh, into Spanish translations of Soviet children's books. So, yeah, hopefully something will something will appear out of this idea.
1: That sounds like a great project, and Spanish translated translation is even even more interesting, right? Um, I'm just curious if... I don't think I've ever actually read it because, you know, I've read something about the English translation but nothing about the Spanish translation. So I'm truly looking forward to uh, reading your next article or the book. Um, I want to thank you for being on the show today and I really enjoyed uh, our conversation today. Um, I want to say goodbye and take care. Thank you. Thank you
2: for inviting me and it was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you.
1: Thank you.